Turn your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 24. We continue to follow the exciting life and ministry of the Apostle Paul. We'll be reading verses 24 through the end of the chapter. The Apostle Paul has been carried under Roman guard, under Roman protection to Caesarea, and he is in Felix's court. Acts 24, 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Excuse me. Verse 26, at the same time he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and its truth, and we pray as we look at Paul's example and his life and the ministry here, we may glean from here help for our life and encouragement for our own ministry. May we borrow from wisdom, from Paul's wisdom and boldness that we may be more faithful to our Lord and Savior today. It's for the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. We've been very well. The Apostle Paul had wanted to get to the church at Rome. He wanted to minister to them. He had not been there yet. It was a little bit further than he'd ever gone before. And I started to title this message, Are We There Yet? A Little Further. Some of you have children, and you've traveled in a car, they keep asking you, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? But I decided not to be cute about it and just called it a faithful witness because that's what we see in this example. Paul's desire was to go to minister to Rome and evangelize and disciple the believers there. According to our text, he is delayed at least by two years. Partly it is his own choosing. When he went to court, when he was examined, when when they investigated the accusations that the Jews brought to him, he kept appealing, according to his Roman citizenship, which he had every right to do, he kept appealing to protection. Let me appeal to a higher court. Let me appeal, appeal to another overseer. But ultimately, all of this is by God's providence as well. God does not let anything happen that he does not intend some purpose for his own glory. And Paul's ministry was to share the gospel. 
Even so, Paul does not set aside his ministry while he waits. He continues to share the gospel. He continues to teach and preach and reason. And our scripture itself says, in the English language, debated. When it says he reasoned with Felix, that means he debated with him. He discussed it several times. Let me introduce the characters in this passage, and then we'll dig into some quick points about what's going on here. The Bible talks about Felix and Drusilla. Felix happened to be a freed man. That means he once was a slave. In fact, he was in the household of Claudius, who had had at one time been an emperor of Rome before Nero came to power. The emperor's mother was the one who granted Felix his freedom. According to an article by Paul Kroll, written in Grace Communion International, Felix was not well spoken of by ancient writers. The historian Tacitus said he played the tyrant with the spirit of a slave. Felix believed himself free to commit any crime. Another historian, Josephus, concurred with this view. He portrayed Felix as an incompetent administrator who used excessive violence and allowed citizens to be plundered. Under his governorship, Jewish violence reached new heights. Sounds like a great governor. Felix was the governor from Judea, for, of Judea from A.D. 52 to A.D. 58 or 59. He was then recalled to Rome by Nero and place, replaced by Portius Festus. We'll meet Festus next time we're together in Acts. Felix had a wife named Drusilla. Drusilla was the youngest of three daughters born to Herod Agrippa I and is reported to have been a very beautiful young lady. Agrippa I, if you're not familiar, you've probably heard us read about him, but he is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was ruling Israel, or the, the king of Israel, when Christ was born. Drusilla was given in marriage at the age of 14 to Azusus, king of Emesa. The historian Josephus implies that she was unhappy in this marriage and was later seduced away from her husband by Felix. And Felix took Drusilla as his third wife when she was 16. Are you dads who have daughters? Think about that. A different day, a different time. The political situation in Judea was so unstable that the Roman governors had to be careful not to alienate their constituencies. They had to be very careful how they governed these people. These people were conquered, particularly Israel did not like it. And they were very vocal and sometimes very violent in their resistance. To say the least, the political atmosphere was volatile. Morality was also problematic. Those who were self-righteous Jews were full of hypocrisy. 
And those who weren't, particularly of those of the Roman citizenship, they were very much into immorality and idolatry. And into all of this spiritual darkness, Christ had come. And the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit was being preached and taught. It was piercing the spiritual darkness and making some people uncomfortable and yet liberating many, many more. We come to Paul. Very familiar with him. We know that he was bold. We know that he was controversial. Many wanted him out of the way. We've already seen that several times. Felix and Rome couldn't couldn't consider him guilty of anything because they could not find any charges that would stick against him. There was nothing that was done criminally according to Roman law. To release him would certainly antagonize the Jews. They wanted him dead. And to release them would make them very unhappy. By now, Paul is kind of a political hot potato. What do we do with him? We can't turn him loose. How long can we keep him here? Still, Paul fearlessly preached the gospel, and he preached the whole gospel. That meant he called people to repentance. He exposed their sin. He let people know there was a spiritual need and they had to turn to the Lord. At this present time, he was still in Roman custody. Some people, some historians, some commentaries call this kind of a house arrest. When he was in Jerusalem, he was kept in Herod's praetorium. We can assume that once he was moved to Caesarea, it was a similar kind of comfort level, probably some antechamber near or in the governor's palace because he was a Roman citizen. They really couldn't put him behind bars, but he was certainly, according to many commentaries, he was certainly chained to a Roman guard. They wanted to make sure he didn't leave on his own. They wanted to keep him safe. Now, think of the Apostle Paul. If memory serves me, the Roman guards at that time were on four-hour shifts, so he would see six of them 24 hours a day. Do you think he was going to keep his mouth shut? For two years, the Apostle Paul would witness to these men and disciple these men. What great missionaries they would make because they would be assigned to go somewhere else for Rome and take the gospel with them. We don't know any specific stories about any of these men who helped watch over Paul, but we can guess that they certainly heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was not the kind of guy to miss that kind of an opportunity. I can imagine some of the men who had the night shift. Paul, do you ever sleep?
But Paul also kept this message strong and bold and clear as he dealt with Festus, the governor. In verse 25, and as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Those are the three points of our message. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. That's what we want to see. Paul is not mincing his words. He's not pulling punches. He's not softening the gospel. He is showing about God's standards. Our call, our, uh, we should not violate God's law. Self-control. If we disobey, if we rebel a bit against it, then we will certainly experience the consequences. Righteousness, God's requirement, God's standard is holy, it's perfect. No one can make it. No one can reach it. Paul reasoned, he debated. The word literally means to think differently with the governor who once was a slave. And by this time, he's already sent a letter We call it the book of Romans. He's already sent a letter to the church at Rome. So I'm sure it was very clear in his mind and very new in his mind. I can imagine what Paul would have said. Borrowing from Romans 6. Felix, do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave, you are a slave of one whom you obey? If you are a slave, Obedient to sin, you're a slave of sin, which leads to death. If you're obedient to righteousness, if you're obedient to God, that leads to righteousness. So Paul would be making this message clear to this man who once was a slave. That would ring true to his heart and his understanding. God's law must be obeyed, but if you live against the law, you do not serve him, but you serve Satan. That truth, that principle is true for everyone today. And you know it, and I know it, and the world needs to know it. Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control. Self-control is repentance. It happens, the word in the Greek, ingratia, happens to be the derivative, I believe, of our word ingratiate. Where we kind of kowtow and bow down to do, I'll do anything you say. But in Paul's day, it was understood as self-control. I will obey. I will listen. I will repent. I will not rebel. Romans 6 again, verse 13. Felix, do not present yourself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as one who has been bought, brought from death to life and yourself to God as an instrument for righteousness. Felix, if you neglect God's standard, if you neglect his law, If you fail to repent, you will suffer the consequences. So Paul is teaching him about righteousness, self-control, and coming judgment. There are the consequences. 
We see this all through the sermons in Acts, not just from Paul, but also from Peter. Acts chapter 10, Peter's one of his first sermons to a Gentile audience. He ordered us to preach the one to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Peter told them, God ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one, Christ the Messiah, Christ the Savior, has been appointed by God as just as judge and the living of the living and the dead. So Christ is not only redeemer, he is the coming judge. He is the coming judgment. And if you've been with us in Revelation, we know that to be true. Paul's message is bold and clear. If you neglect the law of God, if you neglect his word, you shall be judged. And he never apologized for any part of it. He never softened the message. He never made it easy to digest. He never gave a self-improvement speech or a self-help speech. He was not a motivational speaker. And it says here, Felix was alarmed. Can you imagine standing before Felix? More than one historian describes him as a brutal governor and Paul is fearless with his words continually challenging this man who could on a whim have Paul put to death just for the fun of it he used the power of God's word and not man's wisdom the Bible says after Paul reasoned and right, about righteousness and self-control and coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. I want to pause here and think about this. It's not real clear how he was alarmed, but the word used in phobos, in phobos, phobos, fear, phobia, he was frightened greatly. Was he touched by the power of the word, but his heart so dark and rebellious that he still turned it away? Was Felix ever saved? We have no record of it. We don't know. But he told Paul, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. He wanted Paul or Paul's friends to bring him a bribe to turn Paul loose. So clearly, Felix's heart was not right. He was greedy, power hungry. We as children of God are called to admonish people about the whole gospel. That includes God's requirement calling them to repent or suffer the consequences. The church throughout the last century has really softened the gospel message. We talked about this some last week. 
All that has done, the softening of the message, is given more ground for the devil to control. And it's within our own gates, within our own walls. I know some of you enjoy gardening. Some of you who just take care of your own lawn understand that if you're not careful, weeds will come in and they can take over very quickly. If you clear a patch for a garden, if you don't put something in there, something's going to grow there. And it's going to come there from the air or some bird's going to drop it or, a, or the wind's going to carry it in. Some weeds are going to grow. And you have to keep pulling the weeds out or they will take control. Everything the Christian does for the glory of God is meant to reclaim, to reclaim the lost garden of Eden. Not just in this world, but in the ministry of the gospel itself. When Christ said, the meek shall inherit the earth, he was literally saying to the New Testament church, see this land, this is your Canaan, go in and take it. I have given it to you. And what has been our success record? Clearly, the power of the gospel has changed the world. But the church progressively has become more idolatrous. The church progressively has compromised with the world. Our message should still be clear and it should be plain. Because as Paul wrote to the church at Corinthians, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, you should do for the glory of God. Everything you should do is reclaiming the lost Garden of Eden and giving glory to God through it. But the world doesn't like our message if we are faithful to our message. It makes the world uncomfortable, and it should. Here's your sin, sinner. You need to stop. Now that's, I don't know that I would put it that bluntly. But that's basically the message. The sins of the world need to be repented of. People need to be turning away from that. But they are embracing it more and more, and the church today says, oh, that's quite all right. The world does not have a problem with faithful servants of the church, so don't be afraid sharing the gospel. Be fearless as Paul. The world has a problem with the word of God. You can tell them, you don't have a problem with me. You, you have a problem with the word of God. The word of God will never change. The world, word of God will not accommodate the pride and the sins of men. The word of God will always expose man's sin and call everyone to repentance. That's what the word of God does. You need to tell people, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the word. And that's not going away. That is eternal. One day, you will have to deal with it. That's what they need to know. 
If you are a faithful follower, the word of God does not have a the world does not have a problem with you. The world has a problem with the word of God. And the problems of the world and today are the result of the church softening the message of the gospel. The church has progressively ceased to be salt and light. God's standard of righteousness is no longer required. You can be anything you want to be. And Jesus will love you. Self-control or repentance is no longer necessary. Nothing is a sin anymore. Coming judgment, God's not going to send anyone to hell. He's a loving God. That's the message that the church is proclaiming today. And it is a lie from the pits of hell, and it smells like smoke. Some of you may have seen it. There's a little blurb on the internet about a United Methodist church, I believe. I don't know the name of the pastor, but it looked like he, was, he had two little girls up on the steps of his chancel. And it looks like he was giving them a... Sunday morning children's lesson. He was standing on one side, and on the other side was this a drag queen that he introduced to the children as Penny Cost. And he took a Bible verse out of context, just ripped one phrase out of Romans 12, 2. And, and Pentecost is here today to teach us that what the Bible says, that we need to renew our minds, that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds every single day. New ideas are okay. was enough to make me spit sparks. Telling them this lifestyle, the lifestyle of Pentecost and other drag queens might be different, but we need to renew our minds daily. New ideas, new trends, new fashions are okay. God's standard, according to most of the, much of the church today, is no longer necessary. Self-control or repentance is not necessary. Come in judgment. We should not fear that because there will be none. It is a lie. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, be, neither the sexual immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality shall inherit the kingdom of God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 26, you shall not bring in an abominable thing, abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. We need to get back to where we, as Christians, hate sin. 
It not only destroys lives, it not only destroys souls, it destroys relationships, it destroys families, it destroys homes. And what people do when they continue to protect, protect those sin, sinful acts in their lives is they are storing up God's wrath because it is coming. Romans 5, excuse me, 2, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That word for storing up is the same word we get thesaurus from. You've seen a thesaurus before. They're about that thick. And it's not a, it, they just take words in the English language and they tell you all of the sentiment. And you can go for page after page. And I didn't know that there were that many words that still mean have the same meaning as tomorrow or any other word. And Paul uses it there for storing up. God's wrath is storing up like water behind a tremendous dam. And once he turns it loose, there will be no hope for anyone who remains in rebellion against him. Revelation 19, John wrote of a vision God gave him. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in the robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with, his, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress pre- wine of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. you do not recognize God's standard of righteousness, if you do not recognize self-control or repentance, you can be sure you will experience God's judgment, God's wrath, the consequences. I don't like this kind of a message, and you're probably not real happy with it either. But you also need to know There is grace available. There is mercy in Christ. No matter how wicked of a sinner you are, there is redemption available. All you need to do is confess, recognize your need, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and turn away from your sin and embrace him as Savior. Over 250 years ago, a man was conscripted in the Royal Navy, and there is where he learned the skill of sailing. After his service, he invested some money and began working as a slave trader. There's a lot of money in it, or at least there was then. 
By his own testimony, he was a man full of pride and greed and lust. He confessed that he would frequently take advantage of his situation. On the voyages carrying human cargo, he would choose a woman from among the slaves below deck. He would find his satisfaction in abusing her. He would rape her. In 1768, his ship was caught on a bad storm off the coast of Ireland and nearly sank. And that was an event that put the fear of God in his heart and began reading his Bible. And he found Christ. He eventually became a minister of the gospel. Can a proud sinner be saved? Can a proud sinner be changed? Can a proud sinner be considered righteous in God's sight? If you ever make it to glory, and I'm sure most of you will, you will get to ask John Newton that very thing. That's the name of this young man I've just described. And if you aren't familiar with that word or that name, you're familiar with his hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was humbled by the grace of God. He was shamed by the truth of God's word. He repented of his sin and God used him for his glory. He can do the same with all of us. No matter how wicked your heart, no matter how deep your sin, God can redeem you. Not long before he died, he was elderly, frail, and nearly blind. He wrote, Although my memory's fading, I remember two, very, two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. But Christ is a great Savior. And on that, John Newton laid his hope in the Lord and Savior who redeemed him, who cleansed him, who made him new. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word and its truth. And we pray this day that we might see power of your word in our lives as we seek to be faithful to you. Fill us with your courage. Help us to be fearless as we serve our Lord and Savior in these dark and trying times. It is for, for the love of our Lord Jesus and his glory that we pray. Amen.